how's that new baby? <laughs> Baby's good. Baby is good. Good. She is healthy and alert and eating like crazy. Are you sleeping at all? I mean, we're both not sleeping a lot. I think I, I'm sleeping more than my wife just because she's feeding all night. Uh, she probably has a different answer than me, uh, but that's okay. But yeah, we're thriving. We're thriving at the same time in the middle of the transition. Good, yeah. good. Well, today we uh, had the pleasure of speaking with Bill, who I think brought a really fun, unique perspective of like business, but also he, like he's he's uh, very successful in the financial industry, but then like also he's a counselor. And so it like kind of brings him back, back down to earth and just some really, really great perspective that he shared. Also, I love a good East Coast personality. I just really connect <laughs> with that and, and the long windedness and the not the no small talk thing. Like I really jive with that. So just for all of you, uh, in case you care, the three of us, myself, Darius, and Bill, all from the East Coast, just different yeah. parts of the East Coast. <laughs> so. And I think that showed in today's in in the episode that they'll hear in the sense of the dialogue. I thought it was I thought Bill had to really. I was going to label him warm and fuzzy, but I feel like that would be wrong to label it warm. It was more of just like meaningful, very meaningful things to share with you all and, and us. And um, I, I really enjoyed this. We, we went kind of deep, to be honest. I think we went kind of deep and kind of out there at the same time. So I thought it was pretty, pretty legit. And I think you guys are going to love uh, this episode. Absolutely. So we hope you enjoy. Thanks, as always, for tuning in to another episode. Mm -hmm. And we will catch you next week. Later. Good afternoon, everyone. This is episode 36 of the Make a Difference podcast, where we connect with individuals who are doing positive things in the world, amazing things, big and small. And today we have the pleasure of being with Bill O'Haron, a corporate executive in the financial industry, a therapist and founder of the digital-based counseling service, Whole Counseling, father of three amazing daughters he is. He's also a graduate of Middlebury and College. three fur babies. Oh, three, not bad. Three fur babies. <laughs> and in addition to being a graduate of Middlebury College, he is also a graduate of Columbia University. And most importantly, I would argue he is a devoted husband of 24 years. Wow. Bill, welcome to the Make a Difference <laughs> podcast. Thank you so much, Darius. And thank you, Fair. Appreciate it. Yeah, I love being here. As my wife says, I'm pretty much incapable of small talk. Um, cause I've been kind of guy. studying relationships and self for so long that, um, getting a chance to share anything I have that might be of value with folks like you is just awesome. So thank you so much. Yeah. Well, you sound like my kind of guy. I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, and the way we normally kick the, kick each episode off is we, we like to hear a little bit of the backstory of the people we get the privilege of connecting with. And so take us in the audience, give us a little bit of backstory of how, First of all, you're a therapist by night. You're in the financial services, you know, financial industry by yeah. day. Yeah. Um, I feel like they correlate with one another, honestly, the stress and the pressure and needing a therapist. But take us a bit back <laughs> to Bill O'Haran way back in the day and how we yeah. get to 2021. How we got here. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. So working in the financial field, late 20s, early my, in my late 20s and early 30s, I was living abroad. Um, you know, we used to say living the life of Riley, enjoying it except I wasn't after a while and 
having, you know, really nice success in my outer world, but in my inner world, you know, it sounds so cliche these days. This is in the mid nineties. And it just, there was something missing. There was a ache. Uh, and a friend of mine said to me, you should meditate. You should do therapy. I'm like, get out of here. I'm from New Jersey. I'll figure this stuff out. That's what we do. We white knuckle our way through life. Well, sure enough, I meditated one night, uh, I, um, St. Patty's Day, 1996. So it's been 25 years. And that one sitting, that one moment of sitting, I realized that there was a world inside of us, what I call this, this kingdom that I didn't realize that we carry with us. We carry it in our limbic system. And, and, you know, we'll probably get into that later. I ended up finishing the book last year. It took me, you know, 11, 12 years to write it. Um, but in the meantime, as I, I left the business, started this journey, got back into the financial field. I enjoy the connection. I'm a relationship guy. I am a scientist and a seeker and a um, asker in the realm of relationships. Every, everything we do, we're in relationship to everything, whether it's the stars, the trees, our parents, our girlfriend, our boyfriend, doesn't matter. We're in constant relationship. And the only way I believe we can understand another, the other person, is to understand ourselves. As I say, stand in the fire. You know, every person's just kicking up more of Bill. We're in relationship right now, and somehow something will get kicked up, not good or bad, just something gets kicked up, and it's mine to understand and look at. The word relationship comes from Latin base, relatus. It means to carry back. So we're in relationship. Something gets kicked up. I carry that back into my cave, as Carl Jung says, into my therapy, into my meditation. I understand, oh, that's my eighth grader feeling less than. And I bring this wisdom, hopefully this vulnerability to the relationship. And then the relationship expands, the relationship grows. So I am a relationship researcher, I would say. Um, I've enjoyed really nice success in the out, outer world. I raise money for, uh, for a family office. We've done really nicely. Um, but my real love and joy, not but, and my real love and joy is working with people, whether it's clients on a much more surface level, developing relationship, my financial clients, and then my counseling clients really digging deep, going back into the inner child. So that's a long-winded response to, I got here because I wasn't that happy. I asked the question, people said, warn me, if you start asking these questions, something's going to give and something really broke a while ago, 25 years ago, oh, 25 years and 24 years of marriage. Holy cow. How'd that happen? <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that you had this moment where you, you, you knew the, actually you said the exact date uh, where you meditated one night and that was kind of your pivotal moment that changed things for you. So then what was it like you woke up the next day and thought I need to share the power of this with other people. So I'm going to go back to school and then become a counselor in a longer time frame. Yeah. Not overnight. Uh, okay. but yes, <laughs> the, you, you nailed it. Uh, what happened is I kept sitting, you know, weeping and opening as all the elders, all the culture, ancient culture has been doing people have been, you know, culture has been meditating for 200,000 years, um, leaving the left brain and getting to the right brain. That's really the whole basis of everything we do to, to get out of our adult rationalizing self and get into the, to the inner world. I just kept doing it and reading. And I would read a book and I'd get to the end. I'd read uh, Path with Heart and get to the end. What books did he read? And I started reading these unbelievable books, Far Journey, Ultimate Journey, um, Homecoming, all these books. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a universal experience. This kind of hero's journey. It was bringing me such cathartic, what I thought were powerful insights 
by the time we moved back to the States, I got, I got my girlfriend pregnant, AKA my wife of 24 years. We moved to the suburbs. <laughs> I'm sitting in the suburbs. It's, it's, it's 1998, 99. I'm kind of two, two years into this process of opening up and I realized, okay, I've got to earn a living. And so it's been kind of this, this journey of finding the balance of doing the more holistic work. I quit my job. I left my job again, went back to Columbia when my third daughter was being born. I ran a juvenile justice program for black and Hispanic boys in Stanford, Connecticut for three years. It was a tremendous experience. Um, and then I realized, geez, I need to make a little bit more money. So that's when I hung up my shingle as a therapist um, in 07, 08, really. Um, and, but I've been full-time in the financial field since, you know, 2007. So yeah, it, it was this insight and going, gosh, maybe I can hold space for other people to find their thing, find whatever that is. And that's really my MO is, can I hold space for somebody else? And I feel like the more, you know, your own space, the more I know my own sadness, longing, and joy, the more I can understand other people's sensations in their life. I can hold space for my, for my kids and my wife. And you know, I almost get emotional talking about it because it's so powerful when you know your own space and you show people that they can get into their space. It's really pretty incredible what, what can come up. So yes, that's another long-winded answer of, I love felt it. like I want to be in a teaching mode. I love it. Oh, I love it. You're not a man of, you're not a man of small talk. Don't be surprised. You're like, how are the bills? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, is it the draft tonight or something like yeah, that? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. The, draft, watching. the draft yeah. is tonight. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm curious, just as you kind of had this own transformational experience for yourself, I mean, without, obviously, I know it's a very personal experience for everybody. So without that folding too much, I'm just kind of curious if you can speak to a little bit about how you, you talk about really being comfortable with, in your, with yourself and building this relationship with yourself before you can, you know, truly give yourself to other people. So I'm curious what that looked like for you. Hmm. That's a great question. Two things come to mind. Number one, I found when I sat long enough in my own silence, I realized these, these urges or needs or desires or lacks or sense of self-worth um, that I didn't realize were in there. And that was probably the biggest thing. So I'd kind of come out of these sessions, my own kind of private sitting, and I'd wake up in the morning and I realized that everyone else is going through the exact same thing. That was one of the biggest cathartic moments when I realized everybody's going through their sense of self. Everybody's got a, you know, stuff that's happened, not good or bad stuff that happened. And I realized, okay, that guy's angry at me because I cut him off or whatever. Well, he's probably angry at a thousand other things. And I just happen to be standing there in that moment. And it really showed me that every moment it's about my, re somebody said this to me yonks ago, there's only one thing in the world that we can control. Well, I'll ask you guys, what's one thing in the world, only one thing we can control in our lives? Ourselves. Exactly. How we feel. And how we feel is how we react. Robert Monroe, he's, been, he, he's got the Monroe Institute. He studied out-of-body experiences and the human experience for 45 years. His daughter's running his institute right now down in Virginia. And he said, there hasn't been an event or or an act of human history that wasn't driven by an emotion. We believe, I think a lot of times we get lost, our culture, that it's a thought-based world. The universe is an emotion-based world. And I realize if the universe is emotion-based and the only thing I can control is, my, is how I feel, then what am I doing working on anything else but Bill? Mm -hmm. 
And that was a big thing. And then the the piece to that, and John Bradshaw broke ground when he when he wrote Homecoming. It's the inner child work. It's our relationship with our younger selves. And I know it sounds crazy and new agey, but our our the 14-year-old inside of all of us, the eight-year-old. I say marriage, your marriage or your relationship with anybody else began when you were in fourth grade. Your marriage, Darius, began when you were in fourth grade because the emotions that you brought into that matrimony into that relation into the diet of marriage is based on your limbic system which was created the first 10 years of your life and so we carry all this stuff in that we're not conscious of and science tells us why we're not conscious of it and so then i realized oh my god we're carrying all this stuff so i've got to begin the relationship with myself truly with those younger parts and as i collect them and gather them and relate with them and i still do the inner child work almost every day which is reconnecting to those younger parts of us that are really wise, really, really experienced. They had been seeped in experience of parents. I just feel like I kind of understand what's happening around me a little bit better. It's called EQ. It's an over overused word, but EQ is the intersection between left brain and right brain, rational, intuitive feeling world. In the center of that is a knowledge that you understand your audience. You understand what Darius is going through, what Farrah's going through. And with that awareness, you should be able to move through time and space more productively. They said, Daniel Goldman wrote the book, Emotional Intelligence in 1995. The piece of research that I read from him two years ago, he said, as an executive gets to his 10th year in business, 80% of his skills, 80% of his success after those early years is EQ-based. It's not IQ-based. Our IQ stops developing at the age of 16. But our emotional intelligence, our awareness, our wisdom, our experience, our knowledge comes from the emotional world. And so I really have taken that to heart that can I be more intelligent with myself? And I believe that creates more productivity in my outer life. Wow, that was a long answer. I'm so sorry. No, it's great. It's great. So let me ask you, Bill, you you know, he's talking about self-understanding. How does one begin to understand themselves? (sighs) <laughs> wow. You just dropped the you just dropped the anvil right there, right? It has to start with a desire. It really has to start with a desire. Um, you know, we're willing to work on our tennis game, we're willing to work on our Instagram stuff, willing to work on all these things, but a commitment to awareness is a muscle set and a um a commitment that you don't realize you have to make until you actually jump into it. So number one, a desire. God, I'd love to learn more. Number two, a willingness. And this isn't just me, but I am a zealot. Like I'll never be knocked off. The Really the truest, most powerful way to know self is to sit quietly in meditation. I'll give you a quick example. After this call, I'm speaking with a buddy of mine that I've known since 1987 that I've been saying, you should meditate. You should meditate. You should meditate. He's 56 like me. He finally said, Bill, I need help meditating. Why? Because it's just life is, you know, he's super successful, but like, it's just madness, his life, Right. Sitting quietly, Darius, sitting quietly and listening to your heart. So our heart has 40,000 brain neurons in it. What? Our brain has 40,000 brain neurons in it? Our heart sends more signals, many more signals to the brain than the brain does to the heart. The heart rules the roost. It's driving. Our rational self is responding to echoes, to signals. Our heart's like, do, 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 do. this is the core. And so it takes a desire and a willingness to open one's heart. And as I know, one of the things that, that I think you were going to ask me is my favorite quote. I'm pretty sure it's Carl Jung says it's in, 
It's going down into the abyss that will recover the treasures of life. The abyss is the heart. It's the cave, as Carl Jung says. we got to go into the cave and be with self and go, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm still upset about my dad dissing me in fourth grade. And oh, my God, oh, my God, not good or bad. The storyline's the storyline. It's the feelings that are living inside the 40-year-old, the 30-year-old, the 20-year-old that are driving the behavior. So it's desire, a commitment to getting real quiet, and a commitment to letting the feelings tell us what else we should be doing, telling us how to respond, telling us what we want from our boss, from our partner, um, really using the emotions as, as the key component to decision-making with the rational mind always doing the ultimate guiding, being rational in the final execution of what the emotion is trying to get us to do. Let, you're in the financial service industry, in particular yes, pri- private equity. That's result-based, right? That's a result-based arena. So well put. How, how do you, especially being in the executive role, so that's a leadership position, how do you as a leader put the relationship arena that we have to deal with, whether it's Mm. with ourselves or other people, how do you, how do you intersect those two? Because, you know, one gets all the headlines, you reap the fruit, you know, causes all the stress and so on and so forth. But there's the other one that really is pivotal and arguably drives more success or failure in the long term. Wonderful question. Great question. So the way I look at it is I start at the end and I say, what do we want to achieve? Well, we just we just finished a capital raise uh, six months ago. We're back to launch another one as we speak. So, what do we want to achieve? We want to achieve. We want to raise this twenty million dollars. Okay, what do we want to do by perfect? Okay, who are we going to contact? So, let, I just start from the end and I build back. Who are we going to need to contact? How many times are we going to have to contact them? Who else is contacting them? What's our message? All the basic what you guys do for a living and and show tremendous success. Here's where I layer in self and relationship. So here's the end. Got the end zone. We got the goal. It's on paper. Okay. Now day one, what do we do? We begin. How do you feel right now? Oh, I don't feel good. Okay. Why don't you feel good? I don't feel it's constantly using the EQ component of what we're talking about. The context of EQ with the employees in relationship to their relationship with clients. We can only do this unless we can only do it. If clients are going to respond to us. Well, I've had employees where they're so stressed about the product and getting it done that they're forgetting about building a relationship. And success in what I do is almost purely relational. People aren't buying because I've got this wonderful product. It happens to be a good product. We did really well last year, but they're buying because they trust me. And so you can have the end goal. You have all the pieces in place, but do they trust the person telling the story? Yeah, okay, they do. Is this person committed? Am I committed? Are my staff committed? Are we committed to the cause? Yeah, those are emotion-based. Those, are, those, those aren't on an Excel spreadsheet. I think the Excel spreadsheets, people get honed in on that, but I see the gaps You know, where, where a couple of my guys, they were making calls, but they weren't productive. And so it was showing up on the numbers, our Salesforce numbers, like, okay, you're making these calls, but nothing's happening. What's going on? And we did a quick, this, was, this happened last year. End of 19, beginning of 2020, I said, stop talking about the product. He's like, Bill, what are you talking about? I'm like, don't talk about the product. Talk about yourself. Ask them questions. Just like therapy, right? It's like, if I'm building a relationship with you, Darius, if I'm not asking you questions and listening to you, you're going to be like, I- I've got no time. And so that's where I layer in um, infatigably 
relentlessly to the point where my guys are like, Bill, stop with the relationship stuff. Stop. I'm like, yeah, but there's nothing left. There's what's left. Like we're nothing without, yeah, we got this great list. We got this great product, but people aren't willing to take the time to talk to us. So that's, I absolutely mandate checking in and I'm constantly checking in and I want them to check in with me. Hey, I'm grumpy right now. Don't call me. I've got to leave me with an hour, blah, blah, blah. And communication, communicating, communication, as you guys know, and in business is a weird word to use, but vulnerability, right? In any moment, whether it's Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, whoever it is, there's a sense of vulnerability, which can be powerful, but a lot of times employees hold it on. They don't feel good. They don't feel like they feel like they're at risk and all this stuff. And so that vulnerability is a block for growth. So sharing that vulnerability, which is I call vitamin V, uh, especially in marriage, but in just, we use it in a daily basis. Like I want to be, I'll share professionally with a client that doesn't even know me or a prospect, something crazy or vulnerable about me because it's honest and human beings pick up the energy of honesty. Right. You and I, we, us three, we know somebody's being honest. They're kind of telling me a story that's mm, it's got some holes in it. So I'm a I'm a storyteller that is embedded in understanding who the listener is. You think you can be too honest? Yes. No, um, wow, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a great question. In business, when it comes to the facts of a product, you can't be too honest. When it comes to the comes to, is it a right fit for that person? I sometimes am too honest and I actually say, this might not be the product for you. Now, higher ups might say, do you really need to say that? I'm like, but I, I believe that I leave no, there'll be no rags. There'll be no skeletons. There'll be no bones behind me. If I am just brutally, brutally honest. I mean, um, um, good to great. Collins talks about brutal honesty, getting down to the brutal facts. I'm sure you guys have read, read that book or read the highlights to it. It's like, I just want to be honest because then I've got nothing left to nothing left to carry with me. But it's a great question. I think, I think in a relationship outside of business, it's impossible to be too honest because I believe the vibration of what you're leaving behind is there already. And it's that the lingering vibration of something that wasn't fully revealed is the core of what the challenge is in a relationship, especially when I see that in couples, you know, there's just a couple of things that haven't been shared. If I share it, the whole thing's off. I'm like, the thing's kind of off right now. So, you know, make a choice. I love it. I, I, yeah. I dig it, man. I dig yeah. it. So let me ask you then, uh, give us, give us, and by us, I mean me, I'm asking <laughs> the question. Uh, give me your honest assessment, being someone who, who, you know, is entrenched in relationship. Uh, give me your honest assessment of the current relationship of this country's citizenry. <laughs> wow, that's, loves that's loves so, to ask loaded so questions. Say, <laughs> can you say, I love it. Derry, say that question again, please, if you don't mind. <clears throat> from, from your perspective, you, you know, you, you are someone who appreciates relationships so much so that you have devoted your life to understanding what makes the actual makeup of relationships. So when you're looking at the country today, I want to just know from your perspective, how do you, how, what are you observing about the relationships that we have together as citizens in this country covering multitudes of different backgrounds right now? And I'm obviously asking that because from my perspective, um, the relationship is the relationships that 
I think the I think there are a lot of threats to the relationships that we need to have Bingo. for this country to um, to to move continue to move forward in, in a healthy way, um, not only to the future but also maintaining what came before us. I love it. So I lived abroad for six years, and when I when I looked at America in the '90s into the 2000s from abroad to the lens of Europeans in particular, we used to chuckle at the adolescent nature of the United States, one of the best countries on the planet. We are a young, I always say America is kind of like, I kind of liken it to Austin. Austin and America kind of like the parents are gone and they're going to be coming back and the people running it kind of don't fully get it. I mean, we definitely have adults in the room, but there's not enough adults in the room. When I say an adult in the room, true maturity and true adulthood is when if Bill, if I own everything in my life, I make a comment, somebody responds to it. They're not happy. Not sad. I got to own my piece of that. Not enough Americans own their circumstance. It's not, there's no one left to blame. Like an adult, you know, a 14 year old blames school parents, blah, 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 for their lack of joy. Right. And I'm, I'm not degrading that. I'm saying there's probably justification there. But as we age and grow up, we have to own everything in our lives. We have to own our circumstances. What I will tell you is that, and I said this to my dad. And people go, you said that to your dad. My dad was talking and he's, he was saying like, you know, his old, his old um, college, you know, they've hired a bunch more um, African-Americans. And I'm like, that's awesome. He's like, yeah, maybe there's too many. I said, dad, I said, here's what, here's, I'm just going to tell you like it is your generation's got to go away. I'm sorry. You've got to go away because that's, that's no longer the reality of the world. The reality of the world is this world is blending, right? I don't want to get too new agey, but we're entering the Aquarian age. Whatever the numbers are, whatever the date is, the gig is up. I had an astrologer buddy of mine say this to me. He said, Trump, Biden were the last two bastions, fat, old, white, unconscious males who are running this country. That gig is up. How long is it going to take? I don't know. But every human being should be allowed to do their journey. And there should not be anything to impede because that's what our founding fathers said. And unfortunately, our founding fathers and I've done the work, I've studied the, you know, what went into the declaration and stuff. You know, they were dissing the underserved from the beginning, African-American and Indians. Right. So it's kind of embedded and it's going to it's going to take more work, more maturity, more understanding, more self-awareness and more dialogue and not to get political. But we've politicized growth opportunity. And that just can't be done. It's not fair. I look at my kids and they are like zealots for progressive, not political progressive, progressiveness, feminine. The universe is a divine force. The universe, all the universe is based on the divine feminine. It's not based on the masculine. The single God religions were the problem. Because they, they, they took a matriarchal force and they created a patriarchal force, which is not genuine and authentic energy. This is a divine, we live it in a, in a universe that's driven by the divine feminine. And so if you start there, you have a much different lens, right? If you say it's a dogmatic, patriarchal, you know, you sinned and you got to sin. What are you talking about? Is a tree sinning? Is the bird sinning? Is the squirrel sinning? No, they're just being a squirrel. Being human is the opportunity to flourish and become aware and to grow and to finish your life strongly. We're not, 
Robert Monroe says, we're here to take everything from our non-physical self, our emotional self, our limbic self, which is attached to eternity, our limbic body, motion-based, and we're here to bring this non-physical stuff inside of us out to the outer world. How do you do that? Through awareness, through understanding who you are. If we're not creating a space for every human being to do that, we're not doing it right. Yep. So I have a couple thoughts, if you don't mind me sharing. Please. Uh, just being honest. Where do you, it's, it's actually more of a question. So where do you think morality comes from? I think morality is a, it's not a thought. It's a knowledge. It's an experience. It's an intuitive understanding of what is truly right or wrong, not based on modern um, modern structure. Morality is what is the right thing for, for that human being that's either in front of me or I think morality is a construct that has is, is been misunderstood because all decisions have to come from this intuitive place in the middle inside our heart. Because if you actually make decisions based on your heart, it'd be really hard to really, really hurt somebody else unless they're really about to kill you. It'd be really, really hard to deny somebody something that your heart knows. What are you kidding me? How would I deny it? When, when, when our hearts open, our empathy muscles are just powerful. And morality, I believe, is based on, is it good for more than just me, right? As, as we evolve, as human beings evolve, as a person evolves and becomes aware, they are always thinking of the bigger picture, the slightly bigger picture. Is this good for my family? Is this good for the community? Is this good for the general good? That's what I think morality is. It's an experience that's been over-doctrinated and, and, and you know, the Bible's a poem. It's a story. It doesn't have all the truths. It touches on it. And for some reason, the word morality seems to conjure up for me this kind of dogmatic Bible thumping. And there's nothing wrong with the Bible. It's a phenomenal story. I love the story. I'm all in. Um, just, just piggybacking off of that, how, do you, how does one obtain truth? Because, you know, you're talking about intuition and, and right. Yeah. But at some point, there has to be some declaration to build off of, of truth to say this is right. How do you think, how do we understand truth? So as, as Yogananda says, truth is an experience. It's not a thought. Truth is a knowing. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a re, it's, it's literally in your visceral body. It's a biomagnetic, bioelectric experience when you know the truth. And, and, and we don't have to do it now, but if you get somebody to close their eyes and relax for two minutes, one minute, two minutes, and you just slow them down and you go, What's, what are you really feeling? What are you really feeling? And what do you feel is the right thing? What do you think the truth is of this matter? And when they get out of their head and they get into that, that limbic emotion, childhood experience of what the truth is, it's much different than what the brain says. It's the same thing as you ask a fifth grader, fourth grader, third grade, whatever. What's the truth about the universe? Oh, it's mother nature. It's trees, the trees and the birds are talking to us. That's the truth. The truth, is, as Christ says, you know, only children go to heaven. He doesn't mean young kids. He means the child heart. Truth is based on an inner knowing and experience that people don't take time to feel into. They make a, a thought, a belief is just a thought over and over and over again. So if you have, if you have these crazy kooky thoughts, they harden to a belief. That's not a truth. 
that's a, a belief is based on if it's not based on a simmering opened heart, then it's bullshit. Excuse my French. Everybody knows deep down in their quiet. Everybody knows what the real truth is, that we're all connected, that Einstein said, we're just a bunch of electrons packed in this thing and we're all connected to everything. And there's no past, present or future. It all exists right here. Now, if our rational mind's like, that makes no sense. But our intuitive knowing that you say that to a fourth grade, they're like, oh, OK, that makes sense. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, because mm-hmm. in my last life, I was this. And I think the next life I'll be this. You're like, whoa, that's the truth. This thing never ends. This experience of being human never ends. So if it never ends. How do I tune into this thread and really know what's behind it? It's self. It's knowing the heart. It's all the heart. I don't know if I answered the question. No, no, no. You, you, all, I, you know, all I, all I did was ask you to share your thought, and that yeah. was it. it was, and yeah. it was complete. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. I ha- so I have, I have some other questions off of this, but I don't want to turn this into – a philosophical podcast. <laughs> um, but this is, I, I'm like, I said, I'm like you, man, I'm not a small talk kind of guy, you know, and, and I appreciate people that ask questions and they can answer questions and want to think. So I'm going to shift gears for us before I let my co-host hop in. Cause I know she's jumping at the bit. I can see her um, share with us some of the building blocks of a, of a healthy 24 year marriage from the, the male perspective. Actually, not from the male perspective. I'm not going to segregate anyone, just, <laughs> just in general. As the second law of thermodynamics tells us in the universal truths, speaking the truths, is that everything's based on friction. Everything is based on friction. Two bodies will be in friction until they're and hit some kind of inertia. And when we use our rational mind to combat or to, to try to go with the friction that's always going to be in a relationship, it doesn't work. So I base success for me and what I learned is that my wife is having a moment, something's happening and she's, she's getting kicked up and I'm getting kicked up based on that. I'm reacting to that. Success is if I take that information on me and I go back to my cave and I understand, oh, that's how I feel. And I could give you two or three very concrete, specific examples. In fact, I'll give you a quick example. My wife threw a plate at my head. She was so angry at me. We're about two and a half years into our marriage. This is the perfect template. It's in the book. She throws this plate at my head and I realized, oh my God, we've only known each other for about three years. She can't be that angry at me because that anger is much older. And a light bulb went off in my head. I'm like, whoa, we're storing all this stuff. We went to therapy three weeks later and she's in therapy. Her eyes are closed. And she's like, Bill's such a jerk. He comes to the table. He's upbraiding the girls and blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly she's like, he's such an ass, blah, blah, blah. Oh my God, my dad used to make me ride horses when I was eight. And we're the therapist and I are like, what she found was her anger because her dad used to come to the dinner table a little bit drunk. And so I was triggering this eight-year-old emotion. And so I'm tr- always trying to get couples to realize, you know, Mrs. S- Mr. Smith, Mrs. Smith's just kicking up more of you. Are you willing to do the work on you? Well, it's her fault. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I get it. She's human. Successful marriage is knowing that it is a really tough long term. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. Hardest thing you'll ever do is be in a long-term loving relationship. I made the commitment early on because I knew my life was better with my wife in it. So I made that commitment. And when I made that commitment, because I made it for me, because she's better in my life than not in my life, that's when I knew the work was on me and being vulnerable and sharing it. Can a couple be vulnerable with each other? The Madeira Divorce Project, great, great study. 
Uh, it's a 15 year longitudinal study. There's two main things why relationships fail, why marriages fail. The first one, the second one is resentment that there wasn't enough communication. Things happen and it's not good or bad. Things that happen in marriage aren't good or bad. They're just not communicated. And I'm not sharing my version of it so my wife can at least see the lens through which I'm looking at it. Resentment was the big one, was the second big one. The biggest one was friendship. They're they're interviewing couples after they've been divorced for 10 plus years. And they said, what I missed was the friendship. Now, you and I know you have to work on a friendship, right? You don't email your buddy or something. Be like, dude, you're dissing me, right? We forget that in a marriage, that it's the kids, the in-laws, the money, all that stuff. Yeah, but let's just go out and have a coffee. My wife and I do that all the time. I drag her out. Let's go have a coffee. And we talk like high schoolers. So I really, that study really had an impact on me when I realized, oh, there's plenty of resentment being built up if we can communicate that. So communication, friendship, stand in the friction. I'm going to leave you with one last thing, if you don't mind. Don't mind a at relationship, all. A marriage is not one relationship. A marriage is eight relationships. So Darius, you and I and every other human being, you have a basic embedded reaction response to the matriarchal energy, to the feminine energy in your life. You have a basic relationship to the patriarch, to the fathering figure, right? There's something embedded, uh, Young calls an archetype. You have an archetypical response to men, to women. You have an archetypical response to relationships itself, what you witness in your, at your home growing up. And you have an understanding and a relationship to yourself, with yourself, right? So those are happening all one time. Your boss says something, suddenly you're, that kicks up your, your patriarchal response to life. You know, a woman says something. So, so that's going on in you, four. Your wife's got her four. So at any given moment, I'm responding to how I feel about men and bossy guys and, you know, dictatorial, you know, edicts and all that stuff. Meanwhile, my wife's going through her experience with her dad and her, like, that's all happening behind the scenes. So people say it's, it's not, it's all this stuff going on. So understanding, again, it all comes to what's being kicked up and Bill in the action of the marriage. That's, that's the work. That was such a long answer. I'm so sorry. Darius is like, come on. No way. <laughs> no way. It's great. Okay. My turn. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's my turn yeah. now. Wait, I have another question. Oh, I will jump through <laughs> my computer screen. Uh, okay. So I am going to switch gears again because I, um, you are only the second therapist that we've ever had on the show. On the mm. podcast. And um, so I want to use this opportunity to talk about this. Sure. I want to talk about mental health, just oh like yeah. gener- in general. Yeah. Because um, we've been hearing a lot lately about how we're kind of getting back to life here. We're starting to, people are feeling more comfortable, you know, whatever, for whatever. It doesn't even matter how you feel about COVID or vaccines or anything. That doesn't matter. All of that aside. There seems to be like this last year was hard, like really, really, really hard for a lot of people. And I think even I would even argue that people who didn't lose a job or people who didn't even really have to change their lifestyle, they may not even realize how it affected them, but it affected them. So now we're coming back into life and there seems to be... um, People need to take a step back and really like understand how it affected them and then how we move forward. And then two, there also seems to be a lot of um, anxiety I've heard and read a lot about from people who are trying to get 
you know, trying to get back to life. And there's this Mm -hmm. like, Ooh, I want to go on. I want to experience all these things. And I want to see my friends again, but there's like, you know, especially for people who maybe have um, like, I know that there's a lot of people out there who have uh, very, they're like medically scared of things. So I guess, I guess what to get to my actual question is how, from your perspective, do we, recognize what happened in the last year, deal with that, and then come back to life? Ironically, so great question. Ironically, on some levels, and this is just my opinion, COVID was a fantastic opportunity because it created a a monastic life. It created the very life that so many cultures over the last 200,000 years have been kind of forcing their citizens to do, which is go inside themselves. The challenge is, is that a lot of people didn't want to go in you know, in COVID, the opportunity was there, right? It's like not going anywhere, meditate, therapy, all this kind of opportunity. I believe if you had taken the opportunity, which a lot of, I don't want to say a lot, people that I know that have taken the opportunity that are doing therapy for the first time, that are that are checking in with their spouse or their, their significant other at a deeper level, there are people coming out of COVID that are in a place of more understanding. The challenge with those that haven't taken the opportunity, when the doors open to go back out, nothing's really changed. And you bring up a great point. There's this anxiousness. Anxiousness is just an unresolved emotion, an unresolved sensation, an unresolved experience. COVID was a great opportunity to understand what that experience is going on inside of us. But it's a great challenge. It's it's and it's it's a, it's a a challenge that has no. Uh, everybody, 50-year-olds, 22-year-olds, uh, my daughter was doing some therapy, really, really helped. I don't think she would have if COVID hadn't happened. And we were geared and we were, listen, just go talk. She's talked to a great therapist here in Austin for two or three sessions. Boy, some big stuff came up, a lot of tears, breakthroughs. And so I think, I think those that can still use this opportunity to find out what am I anxious about? Yes, there's the actual factual need to be nervous about staying healthy. Um, But is that anxiousness more like, I don't want to do the work and therefore I'm nervous going out? Because if you make that commitment to addressing the anxiety, it's asking you to understand it, right? Mm. Every emotion you're having is asking you to go into it, feel into it. So I don't really have, a, I don't have the, the silver bullet. I just feel like um, as we open up, if you were willing to do some work at COVID, keep doing it. If COVID happened and it wasn't something that you're willing to do for better or for worse, it's not a big deal. Maybe check back into that, have the conversation. You know, counseling these days is so much less expensive on so many levels because there's so many now there's platforms, there's apps, there's like, Talking, we got to cathar, we got to talk, we got to open, share the vulnerability, be with the vulnerability. And that vulnerability has so much to teach us. And that really has been my siren call. My, my message to people is your emotions are there for the intelligence that your emotions bring is an intelligence that our rational mind has no idea is ready, it's ready for, but it is. Hmm. Um, so that's my long winded kind of. It's all there. There is nothing that we can't access right now. That's the beauty of this modern age. You want to do therapy? I could probably sign up for an app right now while we're on the call and engage a therapist right? for right. 20 bucks or 30 bucks. Right. And here's, here's, here's what I find with people. Oh, I found the wrong therapist. Therapy's bad. 
No. You had a bad burger. You had some right. bad fries. Your car got a flat. Try. Keep just try another one. Try another one. It takes courage. Mm-hmm. Um, but you find somebody that can hold the space for you, something good's gonna come out of it. Right. And and finding the wrong one, the good thing coming out of it is it they wasn't they weren't good for me. You must be aware enough to know that that person wasn't the right person. Right. So it's connecting those dots, doing it, having the courage. You know, people that are going back to Darius's great question in terms of you know where the citizen citizen citizenries are, where some of the unconscious people are. People are willing to make all this commitment to like belly hooing on Instagram and you know calling out politicians and all that stuff. Why did you convert that energy to looking at yourself? Like. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But sure. that's anathema to a lot of people. Like, oh, I don't need to know myself because I know exactly how I do you really? Sure. So anyway, yeah. So that that uh this is a good segue into my next question before I let Darius uh rapid fire some questions at oh, you. No. Oh no. But no, when, <laughs> no, 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 it's all good. Uh when so I for me personally, I'm I'm a very big proponent of therapy. I think literally every single person on the planet can benefit from therapy. And I think everyone should have a therapist. It should be demanded. <laughs> it's, like, it's like in Israel, you got to go to the army in America. Yeah. You, got, you should do therapy. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, but since that's not a thing, I, my question for you wow. is, especially now knowing that you spent so much time abroad um, as a mental health professional, what do you think we can do as a country in your perfect world, if you could see our country make a shift to maybe put a little bit more emphasis on mental health or uh, more offerings or whatever it is, like what do you see as a country that we can do to um, Mm. make it more accessible? And I'm not talking about cost. I'm talking about making it more accessible uh, less taboo, more open to talk about. Like I, I will be the first per I, I have no problem telling people I see a therapist and people are like, when, when people find that out, they say to me, Oh, but why? And I'm like, why not? Like, I don't have to have an event in my life or something specifically going on to talk to somebody. It's just good. So anyway, what do you think in your perfect world, what would it look like? Definitely. There's a, there's, there is still a teeny bit, like you said, a little bit of a stigma around, uh, around, mental health work, doing work, seeing a therapist. Ironically, today versus 10 or 15 years ago, God forbid, 20, 25 years ago, when I was younger, nobody, like, hardly anybody saw, like the rich people saw therapists. Nowadays, mm-hmm. I look at somebody, I'm like, you haven't done therapy? What are you, crazy? It's kind of moved a little bit more into that. Um, I don't like the word mental health. I love the word emotional intelligence. I love EQ. I love uh, awareness. I don't like the word consciousness because that sounds way too Hindu-y and way too new agey. Um, but I do think it's all coming. And I'll give you an example. A friend of mine sent me an article a year and a half ago, right when COVID hit. And this private equity fund firm, private equity firm was setting aside a million dollars or $2 million for therapy for the executives of the companies that they were buying. And I'm like, oh, oh." like, finally, you see the intersection of mental health kind of awareness, emotional awareness in the private sector, in the financial field, because they know there's going to be stressors. Um, I think the term, not that it's ever going to change based on our conversation, but I think the term is just funky. It's it's, it's, every culture since the beginning of time has had a shaman, has had a medicine man, has had 
has had a, um, a powwow of, of females. It's had the circle. It's like communities helped each other through their stuff. And we've become so isolated. We've become so um, dislocated from, you know, the real flow of human interaction at times, especially during COVID, is that we have to normalize that. It's just normal to have questions. <laughs> Think of all the things we weren't taught as kids that we know now. That if we had known at 15, 16, 17, not that I would have done therapy at 14, because I'd been like, ah, I'll figure that out. Um, so I think normalizing it, um, we have blown out, blown open the access to it, which is really, really good. Stuff that I think even five, six, seven years ago, there wasn't that much access to. And I think, I think the adults in the room, whatever, wherever they are, realize that having employees that are happy, that are engaged uh, and aware. I mean, the, the numbers are, are really, really strong in terms of, you know, happy employees do better work and can mm -hmm. do it in less amount of time. Yeah. Um, so I don't have the answers, but I do know that um, it's happening. Um, and we just have to, as a community, you know, when you work on yourself, you're always like, oh, that's great. You're working on, you're working on yourself. So it's almost like putting it out there. Hey, you're working on yourself. Oh, yeah, I'm working on myself. Oh, you should work on yourself. I'm constantly saying, go see a therapist. It's the greatest copay you'll ever do. Was it 50 bucks, 60, but whatever it is, you're going to spend that half of that twice that much on a meal tomorrow. So go talk to somebody. Ah, I'll figure it out. So yeah, everyone should do it. Just get in the game. Game of Agreed. self. Self's Agreed. the only game in town. The yep. hero's journey. It has to start. It has to start somewhere. Start today. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'll let Darius take us Lightning home around. <laughs> right, I, got, I, got, I got six for you. Six for okay. fire. Okay, last book you finished. Seth Speaks, Jane Roberts. All right. Two historical leaders. Abraham yeah, Lincoln. Today, not, okay. <laughs> and Whoever wants to know about. And Geronimo. Geronimo. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. They're my boys. He's right there. Abe Lincoln's right there. The greatest human being. I believe whoever lived. Why? Ever, what about him? I'm no, sorry. I know this is the lightning round no, and I'm not no, supposed no, to dive no, deeper, no, no, but no. I'm curious. So every human being, every American needs to read Team of Rivals. This man had so much loss in his life. He lost everybody. At the age of 32, he could not get out of bed. He was so miserable. He was depressed. He was going to kill himself. He was so miserable. And he, he had a third grade education. And from there, he just started going out and talking and talking and orating. He taught himself how to orate. He gets elected somehow. And who does, what does he do? Think about this. He hires his four biggest enemies to be his cabinet members, team of rivals. He hires his rivals. And you read this account with that. They're like, this guy was the biggest idiot of some country bumpkin. This is them talking before he gets elected. He gets elected. He hires these guys. They're on his team. And within like six months, like this is the greatest human being that ever lived. He was willing to wallow in his, he understood vulnerability like no other person. And he was the only person that could have withstood what happened in the 1860s to make our country stay together. The, I believe the only, he was designed, the moment designed him and he designed the moment. Greatest American to ever live. Him and Geronimo was just a rebel and I just love his spirit. Cool. Uh, a fantastic book to read and compliment a team of rivals, rivals especially for those of the business persuasion is Lincoln on leadership. It's mm. a really good book. Wow. Great call. Yeah. Can I throw in Teddy Roosevelt too? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. I just saw the documentary on him. I just didn't know much about him. And he was, he was a man so in front of his time and so committed and he struggled as a kid. He had 
all kinds of ailments, you know, he, and he just made the commitment to become bigger and better. And then he changed, he really, really changed the face of help helping other people. It was brilliant. It was really brilliant. Yeah, for sure. And, and I would say brilliant across different arenas. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> very, very, very much so or many different hats. Uh, okay. Number three, biggest fear. You can't say spiders unless that's actually true. <laughs> not finishing my life. Not getting all right. it all done. Favorite, favorite place to take your wife for a date in Austin. I mean, it's my favorite place. It's Oasis because it's got this amazing view of the lake. So I'm going to say the Oasis and she'd be like, Oasis. That's how it is. I'm going to say Oasis and then True Lux, which is much more expensive. I'm cheap. So, so I'm going to say Oasis. Beautiful view. All right. Nicest view in Austin. All right. I got one more, one more. Okay. And then uh, a bonus one, actually. Because they okay. came to me. <laughs> and then, okay. Two people who have had, and I'm going to say two, just out of, it's hard to place one, but two people who have had truly significant impacts on you besides your spouse. My old boss, Roly Morris, and my dad. Let's go. All right. Last but not least, this isn't a rapid fire question. This would be this. This proceeds fair taking us home. Um, you're looking at your life. You know, talk about finishing well. Uh, so you got 25, 30, 40 more years, maybe. Um, <laughs> I'll take I, care. <laughs> when you look back at it, on it, you know, how do you? Hope the people who crossed your path remember you. Um, I've thought about this quite a bit. Committed to doing as much as he could in any given moment for the slightly greater good for that moment. Roger that. A real, a real belly full of commitment um, to be present and available. Awesome. Well, Bill, thank you. thank you so much for your time today. Course, we really enjoyed you. talking to you. Such great insight. Yes, thank you. Love your energy. We really thank appreciate you. your time. Um, and to our mad podcast family, as always yeah. go out and make a difference. <laughs> I love it guys. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. 